Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. This episode of Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HANGUP at checkout to get 10% off. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of March 14th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the NCAA tournament, a.k.a. March Madness, a.k.a. Springtime for Butler, with topics including the bracket getting leaked on Twitter, and of course, the snubs. Love snubs. Uh, the poor, poor snubs. We'll also discuss Fantastic Lies, the new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on the Duke lacrosse case. And we'll be joined by Ben Rothenberg to delve into Maria Sharapova's positive drug test, what we know about meldonium, and what Latvian scientists can do to make all of us better at tennis and fighting in Afghanistan. Uh, joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic. Hey, Stefan. Meldonium. Meldonium. It borders on the Adriatic. Come on. <laughs> and with us in New York is Mike Pesca, the host of The Gist. Who clearly has been taking a little meldonium <laughs> this morning. blood cells are coursing through Mike Pesca's body. Remember when the biggest problem was that Billy Packer was involved? 
It's a, he's a very niche stand-up comic. He only tells one-liners about the NCIS selection show, followed by the CBS theme music. Very popular among bracketologists. Da, 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 da. What do you think Wayne Tinkle thought about the leak? Okay, a couple. What do you think overseeded beaver Wayne Tinkle, <laughs> Oregon State University, of the overseeded beavers thought about the leak? <laughs> All right, I got to comment that. Got to bring it down. You give me eleven, Mike. Give me four. All right, uh, we're gonna have a live show in DC. What do you think about that, Mike? <laughs> uh, it'll be at the Woolly Mammoth Theater Monday night, April twenty fifth. There'll be an orchestra. Mike Pesca will be there. It's our first live show in a while. We're excited. April twenty fifth, two thousand sixteen, Woolly Mammoth Theater. You can buy tickets at slate dot com slash live. There'll be a cocktail hour opportunity to maybe have some drinks with Mike Pesca. Will there be pigs in a blanket? Cannot promise that. Pigs in a blanket are on the bubble. It's, uh, you know. Too many out-of-conference losses. They had a week schedule. Yeah, we don't take a margin of victory into account, but, you know, we look at Ken Palm and he does. Slate.com slash live, Monday, April 25th, Bully Mammoth, in D.C. It'll be fun. Please go. Please buy tickets. Maybe we should have it at a, at a Topeka Sizzler. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm just speaking of Wayne Tinkle's first <laughs> franchise in the CBA, the Topeka Sizzlers. <laughs> That's really also, the name of the franchise? The yeah, he also Sizzlers? played for Tri-City Chinook and uh, Onyx Caserta. Hold on. Let me scroll down in my Word doc here so I can write Topeka Sizzlers as the afterball name. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on, audience. All right. Um, Mike, we're going to do a call-in show. I didn't talk about this with you in advance, but I think you'll be, you'll be okay with it. As long as we make them use phones. Yeah. Give us a call at 77-HANG-UP-10 on a good sounding phone line so we can hear you and ask uh, me and Stefan and Mike uh, whatever you want us to answer. Make sure that the questions are evergreeny because we're going to do this in a couple weeks. So do not ask questions about Wayne Tinkle. Well, Wayne Tinkle will probably still be yeah, that guy, that going, cons- gonna be going concerned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's going to be on all the talk shows after winning the, the NCAs. And as Joe Lunardi says, people come up to him on the golf course and say, hey, why did Monmouth State get snubbed? So you can still ask about the snubs. That's fine. Monmouth State. Monmouth State. They got a huge snub. 7-7-HANG-UP-10. <laughs> Please give us a call and ask us some questions. Last announcement. I recorded a special like mini bonus extra episode thingy of the show. It's going to come out on Wednesday. It's basketball related. We'll get you in the mood for this the is tournament. Like a, this is like Josh going solo. Yeah. It's your solo career. It's re- it's his referee's whistle stop. <laughs> That's good. Uh, am I more Don Henley or uh, Joe Walsh? Mm, your Maserati goes 185. Yeah, we'll go with Walsh. Um, so to get it, subscribe to our show by going to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts or subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in your non-iTunes podcast delivery mechanism of choice. Um, it'll be in the Hang Up and Listen feed. I'd appreciate it if folks listened. Let us know what you think. Um, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members today, uh, we will talk about the Aaron Andrews verdict, judgment, the $55 million that she got. Uh, Christina Cotarucci, our Slate colleague, will be here with us to discuss. Um, to hear it and to hear other bonus segments on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus. You can also get early access to uh, tickets, special tickets for our live shows uh, if you do that as well. And a free two-week trial, slate.com slash hangupplus. 
So Sunday night was the 35th NCAA basketball tournament selection show broadcast on CBS. The first one that ever uh, went on for two hours, about halfway through, somewhere around the time when Kenny Smith was mocking Charles Barkley for failing to get the touch screen to work because he had too much lotion on his hands. Um, There was no padding in the show at all. A Twitter user by the name of Sarcastic Prick leaked the entire bracket online as uh, CBS's 500 different analysts. They had like the naked gun booth thing going on with Dr. Joyce Brothers opining on snubs. They went on with their big reveal. They acted like nothing had happened. Sports Illustrated's Luke Wen reported that coaches had already turned off the television and started scouting their leaked first round opponents, all thanks to Sarcastic Prick. So Although it wasn't sarcastic, was it? It's his name was a misnomer in this case. He was literal prick. <laughs> uh, he was a literal hero. I think everyone yeah. was happy. I think this sarcastic prick is uh, Ecuadorian for Julian. Assange. Was it sarcastic pricks or sar prick sarcastic? He's since changed his name. He's you won't be able name? to find him. He's hiding. He's hiding. He's in hiding now. Is that like attorneys general? <laughs> prick sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> so. I guess what what this did, Mike, if there was any uh, ever any doubt about this, it yep. revealed that uh, there's not really much to the selection show beyond just like knowing what the teams are. I want to know. <laughs> there's what a, a lot guy of window will... dressing here and very yeah. little window. I want to know what a guy who's watched six games all year thinks going to happen in the <laughs> second round after getting the first round wrong. And by the way, can we at least say that for all the NCAA has done wrong, they renamed the rounds correctly? Although, is it like one of these vacated wins? So in years past, when we had to refer to what we all knew was the first round as the second round, is that still a second round win? Did a coach get to the third round after winning one game, but this year I'll have to win two games? These are some of the questions that could have been addressed in the hour and a half before they revealed the last of the 16 seeds oh my god it was it was so painful and i guess espn was upset but then by the end they should have been like you know what do your best cbs to try to come at us if that's what you got yeah the ncaa was mad that this got leaked online there is there there are so many of these made for tv events you know the nfl draft the nba the nba draft the like draft lottery where they decide where people pick in the draft the combine like all of these things that have that are sort of tangentially related to the sports that we actually want to watch. But this is, I think, a special case because there's something like Dan Steinberg, our friend was writing on Twitter yesterday that it was like, and Dan is a very like kind of uh, Eeyore-ish kind of guy, but he was saying that the selection show is the only thing in life that he enjoyed. And now they've (laughs) ruined it. There's like some, some like weird affection for the selection show. Like, because all of college basketball builds up, to this one moment. People love the tournament so much that it's just, it's like this little endorphin rush that like this yeah. thing that we love is happening and you want to see where everyone's seated and you want to fill out your bracket to do, yeah. like- You want to cut to the team waiting either in their gym or a student lounge with exploding the, with the cheerleader standing it. behind them? Yes, and possibly a mascot. And then you want to see the dejected mascot. And you want to wonder why no one even put a camera on Tulsa because it was impossible for them to make it. So there's bloat in this show, right, Stefan? But it's like it was a benevolent bloat before. Mm -hmm. And it's transformed. uh, I guess it doesn't take much for us to, like, turn on the NCAA or NCAA-related products. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, this would be an NCAA related product, wouldn't it? This would be CBS trying to cover more of its $11 billion in costs by padding the show to a couple hours to have uh, how many more spots can you jam into an hour, Mike? 
uh, however many it is. It's that much more $100,000 that they can help to defer costs. Though they do have to but pay for that. But those I also think it's mostly there. trying to screw ESPN. Because they would announce their sure. brackets, and then right away ESPN would be on it, so the differentiation wasn't that big. So yeah, this probably hurt ESPN. I mean, it hurt CBS, but it maybe hurt ESPN more. Well, but the fact that the brackets were out there already yeah, <laughs> hurts nice. everybody, but at the same time benefits everybody and opens everybody's eyes to the fact that this is a bloated two-hour charade designed to give us 64 names and slot them onto a piece of paper. 68, sir. I'm sorry, yeah. 68. Well, to me, the brackets, that show is a little like the institution of staying after the movie to watch the credits. The credits when yeah. you know that IMDb just has all the credits, and I really do wonder if anyone under the age of 24 really gives a darn about watching this election show and actually writing it down in a blank piece of paper when they know <laughs> they could just go online. So why would they even think about a selection show with uh, be-lotioned Charles Barkley <laughs> ruining things? Yeah, it's very similar to the phenomenon of people uh, tweeting out draft picks before they're announced on TV. Just how it's funny that television is actually the worst possible way to ingest this information. And yet I'm sure that there's like a huge audience who had no idea that this was leaked on Twitter. Uh -huh. This is like a little bit of a media bubble thing where we're all kind of guffawing about it. But this show actually is probably useful and worthwhile to a huge proportion of the population who does care about like what Doug Gottlieb says about Oregon. I don't know. That that might be a stretch. I'm sorry. I went a little too far. But snubs, Mike. Snubs. Snubs. So snubs. we can snubs. talk about the specific snubs. People are very ex excited about Tulsa because there's this thing called Bracket Matrix that aggregates all of the like bracketologists' picks online and they had like 59 people guessed with the bracket and Tulsa was in none of the 59 brackets. There's a player on Tulsa who tweeted to his friend who asked if they were going to make the tournament. He's like, nah, we like got blown out by Memphis. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> then they made the tournament. Yeah, his friend wasn't a member of the committee. <laughs> no. So first let's talk about the specific snubs. And again, we talked about this last year, but it's like the same thing happens every tournament where beforehand you're like monmouth they're great they like beat all these major conference teams on the road the and their bench, bench is so much fun the bench celebrates and does these like amazing choreographed routines and they're great oh they lost in their conference tournament where final. were they mike on the, on the bench rpi because they, they were, they were off good. the fucking charts. Well, they were, except some of the other teams' Started, benches that they played yeah. lost to teams whose other benches yeah. weren't that good. Yeah. yeah. So the problem with Monmouth is they got a lot of attention for, obviously, the stuff like what the bench did. And then early on, hey, they're beating good teams, but it turns out those good teams wound up not being good teams. So whereas, you know, when they were getting a little bit of momentum, Georgetown, UCLA, oh, good teams. Since they weren't good teams, Monmouth is out. Yeah, well, they beat Notre Dame and USC, too, who did make the tournament. And then they, they lost did make to the some tournament. not very good teams. They beat teams yeah. who made the tournament and are on everyone's list of uh, ripe for the plucking. <laughs> plucking ripe. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. one t the team that everyone thought was going to be in that should have been in instead of Tulsa was St. Bonaventure. But yeah, then the Bonaventure. when you're talking about, like, Tulsa versus St. Bonaventure, this gets to my, my big picture point here. Let's play uh, everyone's favorite game show, Hierarchy of Snubs. So here's how I would rank it and just step in with commentary at any point. Mm -hmm. This is my hierarchy of sports snubs. The, sport, the snub that I have the least sympathy for is all-star game snub because mm. 
everyone who's snubbed from the All-Star game actually gets in anyway due to, like, injuries. And in baseball, like, 500 different players make the All-Star game. Yeah. Oh, Plus, I, think I, could, I think I could top that, though. That, that's, like, a, a even lamer snub? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Lack of 100% of the Hall of Fame vote snub. <laughs> that's a good one. It's a good snub. I don't th- yeah, yeah, yeah. My next one was just any postseason award snub, like Mike Trout not winning the MVP snub. Oh, wait a minute. The Conn Smythe Trophy snub is a legitimate <laughs> snub. Then I had Hall of Fame snub after that. But I was thinking more of like Tim Raines didn't make the Hall of Fame snub, not Greg Maddox didn't get 100%. I think yeah. you're correct with the 100% snub. Then after I always that, thought that the Lady Bing Trophy snub was just a test to see how the person <laughs> would have comported themselves had they won the Lady Bing Trophy. Right. Sort of a meta snub. But, let, but, but let's continue. So my next snub was – and. You could debate this. There could be a, a meta snub here. I put college football playoff snub as more uh, lame than an NCAA tournament snub. Here's the rationale. Mm-hmm. You can actually come up with like objective reasons for college basketball because there's more interconnectedness in the schedule. Teams play each other. There are all these different criteria where you can say, oh, they have good wins or they had a good out-of-conference schedule or whatever. You can actually, like, compare teams more apples to apples. Mm -hmm. In college football, it's just, like, totally just plucking stuff out of thin air. Like, oh, none none of the teams play each other. It's just like, oh, the SEC seems good this year. So I think if you get left out of the college football playoff, you have, like, less right to complain. Well, what you're getting at is what we call in statistics snubdle size. (laughs) 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 That's good. Um, all right, I'm up to my final two snubs. Mm-hmm. My um, number two most powerful snub is Olympic team snub. Like when Isaiah Thomas got left off the dream team, that was like a legit snub. He got snubbed. That was an orchestrated snub. That was a big snub. Yeah, and that was my, a conspiracy snub. And then my number one all-time yeah. snub is World Cup snub. Landon Donovan getting left off the World Cup team. That was a snub. <laughs> like compared to St. Bonaventure, that was a snub. That was yeah. like on the Richter scale of snubs. Mm-hmm. There was like exponential more snub. But let's also point out that St. Bonaventure was in the Ken Palm ratings, the Cadillac of ratings. It was 79. And let's also further point out that if there was ever a year, well, I guess complaining about snubs was one thing. And then they added four more teams, well, two more teams. So then it became another thing. And this year, it's a whole nother, nother thing because Louisville and SMU didn't make it. So there are really, the teams complaining now, they, they should have been the fourth person or the fourth team let out. And I do think that St. Mary's, so if you want to talk St. Mary's and Valpo, which are teams with only five and six losses respectively, yeah. St. Mary's beating Gonzaga twice but not being able to win the conference tournament. When you play an out-of-conference schedule and you try to schedule the big teams and you can't and you lose hey, Monmouth very could. few games. Monmouth could. They could. They scheduled the big. Well, they scheduled the big teams and they won, and those teams weren't good. Uh, you know, St. Mary's couldn't even schedule as big a team, and when they do play a team like Manhattan, and Manhattan's bad. What are you going to do? I mean, this is the thing that this. I do think that the committee, uh, as with a case of income inequality, should really look at Syracuse and say, think about how much opportunity they had to, you know, put together That's a big what I win. Always say, and look at St. Mary's and think about how much opportunity they had. Mm-hmm. If you have no opportunity to put together a big win, then you expect the team to be perfection. It is a little bit like an income inequality argument. And shouldn't you also 
shouldn't the committee also be, frankly, considering the value of adding these teams? Because at the, at, at the level of the granularity that the committee does or doesn't take in assessing these teams, because clearly they say they use advanced metrics and we're using more and we're using Ken Palm Plus, we're using Sagarin, we're using XYZ, but ultimately Tulsa. So the, the <laughs> but Tulsa because Tulsa, yeah, you know. So so whether the committee is really doing the sort of, of deep due diligence that they want everyone to believe they're doing, or whether they're going, oh, you know, Tulsa looks pretty good. Let's put them in instead of St. Mary's. I think they should just be considering who would be entertaining to have in the in the tournament. Who would be at this level? Who would be of value promotionally? Who would be of value um, in terms of, <laughs> of making people think that we're letting in other schools, that we're being more democratic, that it would be interesting to have St. Mary's, that it would be interesting to have a second Ivy League school in the tournament oh, when come on. Princeton was like 66 in Ken Palm. Get the hell out, Get the hell yeah, out yeah. of here with this. Princeton right, 66 in Ken Palm. Like, all your, would you rather all your... have, you know? Monmouth, yes. Valparaiso. Monmouth, fine. I'm just throwing names out there. Princeton, <laughs> Monmouth, Valpo, St. Mary's. Yeah, why doesn't anyone give Ivy why doesn't anyone ever give the Ivy League a they chance in anything? Yeah, that's true. I perhaps would buy your hey, let's go with the interesting teams. Then LSU loses seventy one to thirty eight. <laughs> so <laughs> Ben Simmons becomes not that interesting. Um I, th- I do think you. the committee I How do think the committee you, does a very subjective version of that. And instead of who's gonna be the interesting nobody who might spark uh, some imagination if they win. But really, how much money does that put in anyone's pockets and probably they're not going to win? They pick Syracuse. That's the they, they might be telling themselves it's not subjective, but they're picking Syracuse for reasons other than they deserve to get in the tournament. They're picking Syracuse because they're a huge team mm-hmm. with a huge following, and it will mean much more money for them in terms no, of TV ratings. No, 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 no. I'm going to give myself the last word here. Go ahead. So I think that George Mason killed that argument forever because you know if you don't agree with that then you can say wichita state and vcu did like those were the biggest stories in the tournament in their respective years and maybe like in the last 10 years florida gulf coast too was um was a huge one but you can't make the argument anymore especially this year when the teams at the top are so weak objectively like if we're going with our guru ken palm like the top teams just in terms of you know how they compared to past years. They're just bad. So you can't make the argument anymore that it doesn't matter who gets in at the bottom of the bracket. Like, I don't think you can say that Syracuse has a better chance than Monmouth to go deep in the tournament. And I think that it would actually be better commercially for the NCAA if Monmouth made the Final Four than if, like, you know, Pittsburgh did or one of these other middling... Make the final four. Yes, you're right. If it happens. Or the final eight or the sweet 16. Yeah. I think the uh, NCAA bracket names, I just looked at the starters. I like Diamond Stone and Mellow Trimble from Maryland. Good names, right? Good names. Good names. Uh, Prince Iba from Texas. Mo Alley Cox from VCU, because you should have Mo Alley Cox. Dakota Mathias. <laughs> Mo Alley Cox. <laughs> Deshaunay Much from Iona, I think might be the best of the lot. Scoochie Smith from Dayton would be good, except he wasn't born Scoochie. He was born Deshaun. Not that interesting. Name of the year, top seeds, you want to know? This is sort of like the leaked bracket. I'm going to leak the top seeds. All right, seeds what are the top the seeds? the name of the year. Tillman Buttersack got a one. Pope McCorkle the third. Joy Lord Gumby. And Shontavious Primes Willis. 
Those are funny. Butter sack's pretty good. <laughs> Those are Which funny. One, the third? The third? The third. Who, the, who the third? Pope McCorkle. <laughs> <laughs> that one wasn't a big winner for me, but hey. Pope, d- different the third. Stroke. The third. <laughs> you had two chances to correct that. Oh, God, the third. I think Attila Fresca. All right. Let's move, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Coming up next, we're going to talk about uh, a new documentary about the Duke lacrosse case. But first, a word from our sponsor, Squarespace, where you can start building your website today. Uh, Mike, you know that every time we do a Squarespace ad, I like to tell you about a restaurant. Yeah. Because Squarespace has a lot of uh, websites for restaurants. They're easy to build. Restaurant websites often not great. They put the fl- they got the flash. You just want to know what's on the menu. You want to know like what the philosophy is. Squarespace, restaurant websites are good. Restaurant Eugene at restauranteugene.com. It defines Atlanta cuisine, Mike. And you would know, having spent some time in Atlanta. That means that they have the stuff you want, and then a lot of it comes with grits. <laughs> uh, so they also say this on the website, the food and concert with a thoughtful and rotund wine list. So I wanted to fact check this. I looked at the wine list. They've got white wine, red wine, sweet wine. They have bubbles, and they even have orange wine. The wine list goes on for 27 pages. So PolitiFact rates the claim that this wine list is rotund as very true. But don't they just mean robust? I think it's rotund. No, I, th- I think oh. they mean rotund. Yeah. Robust okay. would be the wine itself. Rotund yeah, okay. is the list. Yeah. Right. Zero Pinocchios. Get a fat list. So on Squarespace, you can make your website rotund in all the right ways and robust in all the right places. Um, sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level. No coding required. It's intuitive, and they're easy-to-use tools. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. You can start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use our offer code HANGUP to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com. Use the offer code HANGUP. On Sunday night, ESPN broadcast its latest 30 for 30 documentary, an examination of the Duke lacrosse case. The film, titled Fantastic Lies and directed by Marina Zinovich, debuted 10 years to the day after the party at which the team hired a pair of strippers as entertainment. One of them, a young black woman named Crystal Mangum, would claim that she was gang-raped by three white lacrosse players, an accusation that led to the indictment of Reed Seligman, Colin Finnerty, and David Evans, despite very little evidence that any rape had occurred and even less evidence that the three players had been involved. Within the next 18 months, Mangum had recanted, the players were exonerated, and the man who prosecuted them, District Attorney Mike Nifong, had been disbarred. Mike Pesca, you covered the story for On the Media back in the day. Um, The first wave of reporting, we were told this was a story about race and class and town-gown relations in Durham, North Carolina. But it turned out this was really a story about the media and what happens when preconceptions trample facts. Yeah, and a story about a terrible prosecutor and a story about foisting narratives on a set of facts. Uh, As a documentary, I thought it was excellent. I'm interested in seeing the uh, blowback and the reaction to the documentary, most of which are calling it excellent. But to me, there is a cadre of people who are looking at this documentary, which really does demonstrate that Mike Nifung behaved abominably. And so does, you know, the facts of the fact that he was disbarred. Um, And it really does demonstrate that the uh, potential railroading of these Duke players who were behaved loudishly for sure, but 
you know, that was taken as either evidence of their guilt or an excuse for everything that happened afterwards. So some of the commentary afterwards is interesting to me because it reminds me of kind of very right-wing commentary after um, a story where there's either an exoneration or where where a more liberal worldview is affirmed. And I'm seeing the opposite of that. I'd like to talk about that too. But as a documentary, it's pretty factual. We really do get inside the facts of the case in a uh, meaningful way. And we get to see the families, some of the, some of the Duke players, but mostly how it played out with the families. Right. None of the three who were accused agreed to uh, participate in, in the documentary to be interviewed. And but all of their fa- a parent of all but of them. But a parent of all of them did. And uh, I think at least a couple of other players also were interviewed. Yes. Um, the, 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 the thing that's, that leapt out at me from the beginning of this film is that the way the media jumped onto this case. So early in the documentary, uh, they interviewed Daniel Okren, who had been the public editor of the New York Times before the, the lacrosse case. And he talked about how the Times wanted to own this story. And this is one of the great conceits of journalism, isn't it? That something big happens and we're going to go down and we're going to dominate the coverage. And in this case, that was especially appealing because of the nexus of privilege and class and race and sports and the Times did try to impose a narrative on this piece. And it, along with so many other people, didn't ask a basic question, which was, what if these guys weren't guilty? I mean, it's certainly possible that I believed the same thing at the time, that, oh, lax bros on the, on the, on the prowl and lax bros behaving badly. You know, this reinforces our, our, our preconceived notions of who these children of privilege are. And it didn't turn out to be the case in the most horrific way possible. Well, here's my question for you, Mike, because you did follow this really closely and follow the media coverage back in 06. My thought watching this documentary was like up to a certain point, I felt like everyone was behaving rationally and you could totally understand how everyone was behaving. And up to that point was the moment when the DNA tests came back for the players and they found that no, none of their DNA was found present on the body of this woman, Crystal Mangum. Up to that point, you have a woman saying that she had been gang raped in this house. As like a society, I think it's like beneficial for us to believe accusers when they say that they've been raped. And to come in with the like preconception that they hadn't done it or let's look at all the facts. I think that's, it's easy to say that now in hindsight, but when you have somebody saying that she's been raped and when you have a prosecutor coming out and saying that all the evidence they had was really strong and suggesting it that way, I can totally understand how the students on Duke were protesting and were angry. People were angry about the lacrosse team being silent and not coming forward. After the DNA test come back and then they still are trying to like prosecute these guys and go after them, that's when I think it went off the rails. Well, a couple things. Do you really think it's beneficial to believe rape victims or do you think it's beneficial to take seriously their accusations? Because I believe the latter, but not necessarily the former. Well, the, the problem is that it's really, really hard in most cases to get evidence that will 100% prove anything. And so I guess my point is more that this was inevitable once the accusation was made. I'm not sure that anything, that any like 
Pointer Institute after action report or anything that we can like think deeply about now about what the mistakes were made. If someone makes this charged of an accusation, mm-hmm. I just don't know if even after we've all thought about this and all the repercussions, like, do you think that anything would be different now? Yeah, I I think a lot of it depended on the competence and the good faith of the prosecutor who was in charge of things. I mean, I did a story on On the Media, which was, you know, two months after it first surfaced. And what struck me at the time was days afterwards, either a rape happened or it didn't. And the stories were about town and gown and the demography of Durham. And that just struck me as imposing perhaps a third, fourth, fifth generation or fifth day's take on it. Hey, this is also interesting to consider. But to me, either a thing happened or didn't happen. And when we start talking about, you know, how riven the city of Durham is. So if it happened in Princeton, which where the city gets along better for a lot of reasons, like there's no poor community there, uh, it wouldn't be, those facts wouldn't be true. What we were saying is, I mean, there were there are people with preset agendas, and of course, everything has to fit their worldview. And you say, I don't. I think you use the word rational. To me, it's predictable. I mean, Nancy Grace is not rational. Sure, it's predictable she would get upset at at the students not coming forward. But the facts were the students did come forward, or the students participated really as much as we can expect someone who's accused of a crime they did not do to come forward. And when you have protesters outside their house on campus, there are protesters on outside all the time. The question is, you know, does the media say, yeah, they have a really good point because the accused are lax bros? Or does the media say, protesters are going to protest. Let's see this play out. I don't think the media at any point was really, I mean, the media are a lot of things, but I'm going by Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine and the New York Times and non-Nancy Gray's national media were set it seems like the presumption of guilt was absolutely in the air. And you're right, at that point when Nifong didn't get any DNA that he promised would be dispositive and affect the case going forward, then there should have been the recalibration. But beforehand, you saw where the uh, scales were tipped. Right. There was an enormous amount of moralizing from the very beginning in this case, in the pages of the New York Times and in other publications and certainly on television. Uh, At one point in the documentary, a reporter, Susanna Meadows, who's quoted a lot in the documentary, says that the story became much more interesting when it became clear that the lacrosse players weren't guilty. Really? The story was tragic from the beginning for these men. Um, And again, that's not to defend having a drunken party and hiring strippers. That is to say that the criminal justice system abused these guys. So fuck you and your stories. This isn't about the media. This is about how the criminal justice system failed. So would it be instructive to think about the Rolling Stone story, the Sabrina Rubin Erdely piece, where you have an anonymous woman who just went by her first name telling a story about a gang rape at a fraternity house, and none of the people were identified, but I think fraternity at UVA carries the same sort of like bro-ish, loud-ish connotations as lax bros at Duke does. Um, That story was believed for a much shorter period of time and certainly did not lead to any criminal charges. Um, And then people started to pick it apart, you know, started looking closer at the story and it just didn't really make any sense. Do you 
think that there's any kind of parallel there? Did, is that because we learned some sort of lesson, Mike, or is, or is it because there's something just fundamentally different about the type of story? This is the parallel. The, the reason it's not a parallel in the UVA case, there was no race and class aspect. So the racial aspect was gigantic, of course. But, I mean, just, just one thing is that the problem with that Rolling Stone story is the reporter explained afterwards, she went like venue shopping for the most outlandish story she could possibly find to tell a story about the sexual assault crisis on college campuses around America. And that is another way that the media can screw these things up is that they look for, you know, we all look for anecdotes, for narratives that help tell larger stories. And the problem is when either the narrative is too good to be true and it just isn't true, or we try to impose bigger issues on narratives where they don't really fit. Right. Well, you know, Stefan and I were trained in, and Josh, you embody a type of journalism that is not primarily based on advocacy, although all of us now, you know, dip our feet into opinion journalism for sure. But the main purpose of the questions we ask and the stories we follow and trying to figure out what happened is, okay, what are the facts? Let's try to figure out what happened rather than let's confirm a worldview. I'm sure someone would be able to criticize us and say that's not the case. But, you know, the way I think we were all trained to be journalists is, all right, let's establish the facts. Let's do them within these norms of good journalism. And in both cases, this wasn't what happened. You know, in the UVA rape case, it was a work of fiction, essentially. In the Duke rape case, it was a question of interpretation. And what was weighing in the interpretation was something other than, I think, the best practices of journalism were things like assumptions and stereotypes. And then there was a second set of stereotypes, which was, you know, well, we all know not to stereotype one uh, sector of society, but it's okay when you stereotype a privileged sector, whatever that means, or it's okay when you stereotype a, uh, you know, white entitled sector of society. I think the biggest parallel between the two is that afterwards, so often I heard the advocates, so many of the people who are covering it, saying something like, the sad thing is this will set back the movement. And I just don't think life works that way. I mean, I was thinking about examples in real life. Like, I absolutely think communities of color are over-policed and there's a crisis in this country, a big problem, let's say, in this country. And yet at the same time, I happen to know, if you read the news, that every once in a while there is someone who, a a black person, who kills a cop because they're angry. This happened in New York. This seemed to have happened in, um, in Texas. It doesn't, I don't say it's a shame that this sets back the movement. I just say, you know, life is complicated and not everything that happens confirms this thing that we think is true of the world. I look at, I believe that abortion should be legal. And yet this abortionist in Philadelphia, Kermit Gosnell, ran a horrific abortion clinic. I don't say, oh, the shame of this is it it got coverage and set back the movement and it should have been covered at the time by trying to deny what the facts of the case were. Life is complicated. And as a journalist, if you document things accurately in the end, more, if you have a certain worldview, you'll prove it more than you will disprove it. So that's another thing I think that's been going on with this case and still goes on in reaction to this documentary, which I think was a really good documentary. Yet some of the commentary is some things like, you know, everyone who wants to deny a rape will say the Duke lacrosse case. I agree with you, Mike. And, and I think that in this particular case, I mean, in the, in the most narrow interpretation and observation of this case, it ends up being about these preconceived notions of athletes, of big 
rich athletes in a sport that is perceived as not perceived as in a sport that is overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly Northeast, overwhelmingly New York, really. Um, I mean, the, 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 these two, how many, two of these of the three accused were from Long Island, I think. Um, that is the stereotype. And Duke was perceived as a, as a, as a Northern university in a Southern place. So it fit conveniently with what we want to believe about athletes, too. And that's not to say there isn't some truth in stereotypes well, I want to ask, athletes. I want to interject and ask you about right. that as, as we transition into our next segment. So that's the question of which narratives did the Duke lacrosse case prove and which did it disprove? And Mike mentioned at the very top of his first answer about these guys maybe behaving loudishly. The documentary didn't mention, or I mean, I'm not sure it should have mentioned, that I think 15 of the guys on the team had arrests for, you know, alcohol-related issues, like minor stuff, but basically just like acting like jerks, um, you know, public drunkenness, that sort of thing. So that led people to be like, oh, they must have raped this this woman. Obviously, that's horrible. But there is still the question of like, was this team like, you know, a bad influ- thing on campus? Like, was it was this team actually, you know behaving badly and the i think we weren't like allowed to have that conversation because they were just treated so like amazingly horribly well so do huge male athletes teenagers and young 20 somethings who play collision sports on scholarship at wealthy universities sometimes do dumb shit Absolutely. We know this. We read the newspapers. We read the other forms of media. But should we treat it as a fait accompli or should we actually like try to get them to not do dumb shit? We should try to get them to do dumb shit. But should that influence how we view this case? Um, Christina Cotarucci of Slate wrote a piece about the documentary. She's going to join us for the bonus segment, talk about something else. Um, And she wrote in it, that Mike Nifong and his enablers did the three indicted players a grave injustice, but it's hard to muster a full 90 minutes of righteous anger on their behalf. Because they're privileged? I don't know. I was pretty righteously indignant about what happened to these guys, whether they were dicks that I wouldn't have hung around with when I was in college or not. And and there are countervailing trends like, uh, yes, the privilege of uh, very rich uh, athletes on campus. But what about the abuses of prosecutors? You know, that's a societal problem as well. And I come back to, yeah, the Duke players, uh, at least a lot of them acted pretty poorly uh, hiring strippers, which is a legal thing for adults to do. And then being cruel to the strippers uh, after they didn't perform up to their standards. At least a couple of the players, it would seem, did get those strippers out of there. But, you know, there are so many cases where people are incorrectly convicted or we find out that they were the victims of an injustice where they do a small they maybe commit a minor crime or they do something that is not the right thing to do. You know, you think of the Central Park Five. They they did not attack that jogger, mm-hmm. and yet they were out in the park doing naughty things that night. So there are many analogies of, yes, they did wrong, but the wrong they did was nothing close to the wrong they were either convicted or accused. Let's not create any false equivalencies about the levels of injustice here. Last week, tennis player slash famous person Maria Sharapova announced in a press conference that she had tested positive for a banned performance-enhancing drug. That drug, meldonium, was just added to the ban list by the World Anti-Doping Agency on January 1st. 
And Sharapova claimed that she hadn't read her email to see that it had been banned. Okay, a couple of things are noteworthy here. Number one, Sharapova came out and made the announcement herself rather than waiting for tennis authorities to do so. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of her press conference where she congratulates herself. I thought it was very important for me to come out and speak about this in front of all of you because throughout my long career, I have been very open and honest about many things. And I take great responsibility and professionalism um, in my job every single day. And I made a huge mistake. And I, I've let my fans down. I've let the sport down that I've been playing since the age of four that I love so deeply. Okay, uh, number two, Sharapova claims that she is taking this drug for 10 years to deal with a magnesium deficiency, I think. Um, but doctors say that that explanation doesn't make any sense. And the salient point here is that 99 athletes reportedly have tested positive for meldonium since the first of the year. Uh, joining us now from Indian Wells, where there's a tournament going on of tennis, it's uh, Ben Rothenberg, who writes about tennis for The New York Times, sometimes for Slate. He's also one of the hosts of the No Challenges Remaining podcasts. Hey, Ben. Hey, Josh. So you were not at the Sharapova press conference because you were sequestered uh, taping a Jeopardy episode, which you're not allowed to tell us about. That's correct. Okay. Just want, want, just want <laughs> Excellent to, brief <laughs> answer. Just want to establish, wow, a, base, just want no to establish no. a baseline there. So you're not able to comment on the carpet at the hotel. Maria was like, if, if this was a retirement conference, I would have press conference, I would have chosen a hotel with a better carpet, which was a very odd yeah. way to enter press conference. That was the strange, it would end the opening remark for sure. I did see the carpet in a, in a wide shot of the press. Yeah, conference. I noticed she was that too. In or out. It was ugly carpet. I'm yeah. not sure I would think to comment on it on in this occasion. If I was had to be, you know, called on the carpet, quote unquote, for a positive test in this situation. But I guess it's just sort of her style to uh, to be irreverent or take shots where she can at <laughs> take, the carpet. Take. Although I, I assume these people were nice <laughs> enough to give her this room, so it seemed a I little know. bit like a. It was very odd, uh, but ungrateful. The, ungrateful. The thing that um, I'd like to hear from you is you did a piece for the Times about where all the players, like including Nadal, Rodwanska, a bunch of them were like, I don't read my email either. But yeah. um, my question is, how do players think about what happened with Sharapova? It seems like they're being very careful. It is very hard to believe the stuff that she was saying in the press conference. And my question is, like, do the players believe what, what she's talking about? Do you have a sense? Do they think she's a, she's a lying liar, but they don't want to say it out loud? I think there's a split. I think a lot of them do take her at her word that she was taking this for some sort of health condition. And you mentioned the magnesium, but the, she listed a, a sort of a barrage of different things that she had going on, a regular EKG results, you know, pre-diabetes things like that. And so some people do think, you know, a lot of these players seem to get sick more often than the average population just because of how much travel they do and things like that. So I think there is some sympathy on that level. And then there's a separate question, which maybe we'll get into soon about if this wasn't illegal before, is it a problem that she was taking it? And players have been more or less divided on that. Again, they've been largely cagey with their answers, but some have straight up said that there wasn't an issue necessarily with her taking this substance before it became banned, that she was doing what she could within the rules. And that, that's a that's a big, uh, big question for various people in terms of where you fall on 
how much uh, derision she deserves for this. I just wanted to compliment you, Ben, for your brave reporting on magnesium depletion within the tennis community. This is an <laughs> issue that has gone undercovered for too long. A couple things. If it really was a health issue... You don't take you don't take meldonium every day uh, as Sharapova did, or you just don't continue taking it. The drug manufacturer says the course of action is, you know, the course of treatment is four weeks, six weeks, that sort of thing. So that doesn't seem to be following uh, what one would do with the drug if it were for a legitimate reason. And the second thing is, isn't there an analogy between something like HGH, which does have a medical reason, which maybe people claim that you could take for a medical reason, which wasn't banned in the NFL, but now is banned. There are plenty of drugs that weren't banned that people would take for a legitimate reason that do get banned. Sudafed, all these all these uh, swimmers would take high doses of Sudafed and Sudafed-like drugs, except it is banned. So, I mean, it, it seems like that explanation trades on the fact that we're a little bit ignorant of the realities of WADA and how, uh, and how drug use works among top athletes. No, for sure. And I think that what she's contesting, it, they were, she's Parts of her defense have started to leak already from the Sharapova camp. And one thing that she's contesting is that her dosage, which we don't know, hasn't been confirmed yet by WADA or the ITF or anything like that, is below what would be a doping amount. And that she wasn't, in fact, taking it every day. That she was doing it on some sort of intervals that were not consistent with what you'd expect from someone trying to gain a performance-enhancing edge for it. I mean, obviously, the numbers of people taking this drug, from what the culture of this drug seems to be, as we're learning over the past week, is that it was more or less treated like a vitamin uh, by Russian athletes or Russian doctors. Uh, something crazy like 17% of Russian athletes were shown to have tested for it before it was illegal last year when it was in the monitoring phase of WADA's program. So, yeah, Chris, um, Chris Clary, whoever, your, yeah. your colleague Chris Clary in the New York Times has a piece in uh, Monday's uh, newspaper that describes the process that led WADA to ban the drug, uh, very specifically, very much in detail, sort of going through it. And it does seem that a, a lot of the rationale behind banning it was the preponderance of its showing up in in testing results. Um, this is actually an over-the-counter drug in some of these Eastern European countries. Um, it's not a FDA approved. Right? It is not FDA approved. Right. It's not approved in Europe. And two things a leap out to me there. One, there's a piece on CNN.com uh, that sort of discussed the lack of real study of what the effects of this drug are. There really hasn't been that much testing on athletes. There was one study of judo players, um, apparently, but uh, not much more. Well, the Times did report that it increases the sexual performance and sperm motility of boars. Mm -hmm. Also, <laughs> one of the known side effects is it makes you uh, hate hotel carpeting. <laughs> 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 but for Sharapova, like, this is a top athlete who has been living in the United States for 20 plus years. This must have been one hell of a family condition, medical condition <laughs> that required her to get a drug that's unavailable in her country of residence, unapproved by the federal government in that country. And it's just it's just kind of it, it, it beggars belief that there are genuine medical issues here that require this specific drug. No, I, I that's a that's a common sentiment around for sure that the idea of this very much US based athlete taking a foreign drug has raised a lot of eyebrows for sure. I've talked to doctors who say it's not as uncommon as you would think for someone in an immigrant situation to keep taking drugs from whatever their home country is. And when Sharapova started this drug, she was 19 and her parents might not have felt as comfortable with U.S. medicine or something like that. But the <laughs> fact that she kept, no, th those, on, those, are, those are, 
those are ideas. But the fact that she kept taking it for these next 10 years and didn't, as far as we can tell, didn't try to find any more easily acquired U.S.-based solution, definitely. Come on, we're uh, all yeah, we're all adults here. This, sure. this, this, she's <laughs> obviously just like making shit up. I mean, come on, let's be let's be honest here. And the question, and on th- further and further casting suspicion on her is the fact that she's been romantically linked to Pumbaa from The Lion King. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's Gregor Dimitrov's new nickname. Pass it around in the locker room, Ben. Um, so two two things um, that I want to raise. Number one, it's it leads to the question of like what is cheating because it is totally unclear Uh that this does anything and that's the case with so many of these drugs and we talk so much about how oh the dopers always be ahead of the testers well like really because dopers end up taking stuff that it's like unclear what it does or if it works at all you just get like some shady russian doctor to tell you take this pill and it would shock me if there was any performance enhancing effect of this thing, or you could connect it in any way to anything positive other than the drug test that Maria Sharapova has ever done. Any on the tennis actual court. performance enhancing effect. There, there might some... be a placebo effect of some sure. sort. I need to take something to make me get through another workout. The other point I want to raise, and Ben, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is, and I meant to bring this up in the Duke lacrosse uh, segment, is you know, everybody's talking about how great the the lawyers are for the defense team of the Duke lacrosse case. And they were good lawyers. But when the guy, Dave Evans, came out and was like, these are fantastic lies, the people say in the, uh, uh, you know, in the documentary, oh, everyone believed them after that. It's like, OK, well, then why were you just being totally silent when everyone was accusing you of this? If you could just hold a press conference and say that it's like a lie and then everyone will believe you. And that's the genius of Sharapova. She comes out. Before anyone could, like people thought she was going to retire, she comes out yeah. and totally owns the story from the beginning. And she gets like a few of her sponsors behind her. She gets Serena Williams behind her. You know, everyone who like bothers to look into the story a little bit can tell that she's full of it. But I think it was a totally genius move on her part. And she's very savvy at PR. And this is like all a PR thing. She was able to take advantage of the rules for re- revealing positive tests in tennis, which are uh, notorious within tennis, at least, for being pretty shady or shadowy. Uh, Marin Cilic, in a famous example, tested positive for something in April of uh, 2013, I believe, and started a suspension in July at Wimbledon, pulled out of Wimbledon in the second round, citing a knee injury and kept withdrawing from things, citing this injury over and over. It changed to personal reasons at some point once the leak of his uh, provisional ban came out in Croatian media. But we didn't find out for sure from the ITF that he'd been banned for anything until I think the punishment was handed down in September. So Sharapova did have this option to step away silently and just keep citing you know, personal issues or the she was legitimate injuries she's had. Yeah, she had a legitimate forearm injury that she's been dealing with for quite a few months. So if she hadn't called this, we wouldn't have known for quite a while. She got in front of it. She got to, you know, set the tone of the conversation at first. It it turned on her fairly quickly with Nike suspending the relationship with her within hours, which I think changed a lot of how people were reacting. Let me jump in on the Nike thing. Ben, let me jump in on the Nike thing there. Do you think that they're using this as an excuse to dump her because they're overpaying her maybe or because they see her marketability waning, particularly given how old she is and how futile she's been against Serena Williams? This seems like a convenient time to get rid of an athlete who maybe isn't adding so much to your marketing portfolio anymore. 
no, that's definitely a read that I've had on it too, that just this is a time when she's at the end of what was a very expensive career. They got her when she was very young and she was a next big thing. And not that she was a, you know, her career was a flop, but she won five grand slams and which is a lot fewer than her contemporary Serena Williams, also a Nike client. And the idea of her winning many more in her career is probably low. And so, yeah, if they saw a window to get out of this deal, cynically, they might have taken it because Nike does not have a stellar record of, you know, ethics in terms of getting rid of people immediately when they're issues. Hey, Lance, Ar- Lance Armstrong. I mean, they, yeah, they stuck Gatlin, by, Lance they just, by Lance Armstrong yeah, for a long just, time. They just took back Justin Gatlin. Yeah, who said yeah. two very clear positive tests. So is there uh, a gender issue ridiculous. here, too, when it comes to Nike making these kinds of decisions? Could be, sure. Uh, although, you know, just because Nike supports Justin Gatlin, it doesn't mean that, that, that his contract is anywhere near the Maria Sharapova contract, right? We're right. talking about one could be in the six high six figures versus seven figures. Uh, but the Sharapova is claiming that it seems like she's having it both ways. She's doing, I think she's doing a fine job PR-wise. Look, uh, Williams is on her side, right? But by saying that tennis, or as you said, taking advantage of tennis lacks rules, she's also pointing to the fact that tennis has lax rules to claim double standards, or at least her supporters are, talking about Andre Agassi's actual test for crystal meth, which he just was able to explain away to them, even though he later, you know, admitted in his book he actually did smoke the crystal meth and knew what he was doing. So I don't know if you think tennis uh, should be... If it's just that tennis gets a little, takes a little bit on the chin here, or if it's more Sharapova cynically trying to use tennis's past when they're trying to do the right thing now in the present. I mean, I think it's both. Obviously, there's another story that's been dominating a lot of tennis media about the speculations of silent bans that have been going on really since the Agassi, a very legitimate, you know, cover up was revealed in his autobiography. Um, there's been more and more fuel to the fire of various injury absences from players being correlated to possible silent bans. And just this week, uh, on a French TV show, this woman named Rosalind Bachelot, who's a former minister of sport in France, went up, was on a panel talking about Sharapova and went on this sort of rant about how it was obvious that Rafael Nadal had been taking silent bans when he was out for seven months with what he said was a knee injury, and everyone knew this, and he was clearly doping, and Nadal came out yesterday and said he was going to sue her. Um, so that, I mean, these sort of things in tennis, the shadowy nature of it do lead to a lot of wild speculation for sure. And I'm not, and more transparency on the side of the ITF would probably help that. They've said they want to protect the innocent by not revealing positive tests before a full trial, but it winds up being a pretty murky business pretty quickly. So I guess my question for you on the Sharapova test is we've heard for so long that tennis testing is the maybe the worst and least effectual of any major sport. And recently, yeah. um, players, like all the top players, Djokovic, Murray, Federer, came out saying that drug testing needs to be more robust in season, that they talked about, you know, how pitiful it is. So is this just like an outlier? Or is this a sign that testing is something that's going to be happening more seriously in the sport now? I think there's a general sense that this is the tennis program has gotten better. Murray did say this week that he's only been tested twice this year, which he considers wildly, you know, insufficient that a top player like himself being number two in the world only gets tested that way. And in tennis, the testing does tend to happen in competition only after losses. So Murray didn't get tested at the Australian Open until he lost in the final. Other players, based on just the delays they had when coming to press, you can tell they were only getting tested pretty much after losses. So there is a relatively clear pattern 
to when they distribute the testing. On Sharapova, I'm not sure how much this speaks to the testing because she failed the very first test she took after the status of this drug changed. Um, she wasn't trying to beat this test because as she claims, and I believe this, that she didn't know that the, the status of this drug had switched because, I mean, all these Russian athletes piling up one after another, clearly they weren't getting the message because if they were doing anything trying to performance enhance or be sophisticated with this, or at least if they knew that the status had changed, they would have stopped taking it. And she's, I don't, whatever you think about Maria Sharapova in this situation, I don't think she's, anybody thinks she's stupid enough to try to take this thing after it had been banned, knowing that she would immediately test positive. Well, somebody's pretty stupid because she has lawyers, she has doctors, she has trainers. Somebody could have looked at this. Look, she wasn't doing anything wrong, technically, until this drug was added to this list to take effect at the beginning of the year. So if this says anything, it says that athletes are careless and their trainers and managers and all these people that they pay a lot of money are not particularly careful about how they monitor what their athletes are doing on top of the general question of why is she going to some Russian doctor to take some drug that you can't get in the United States? Absolutely. Hey, look, man, that, yeah. the FDA is not the, uh, the be all end all. Why are you like down on the, whatever the Russian, uh, drug administration is? They might know what they're doing. I mean, poor Latvia. Yeah. They probably can prescribe you some bare pancreas. I don't know if Ben cares about my take, but I don't think Maria Sharapova is a bad person. I'm willing to believe that she was taking a thing like every athlete would take if they were allowed to take, which could help her. So it's not that different from, I don't know, a hyperbaric chamber or creatine. And I kind of wish that she were better at tennis or not on the downside of her career so that she could come back and maybe win a tournament or compete for a tournament post Meldonium. Is there any possibility of that, judging by her age, her body and circumstance? I would think so. Actually, I mean, she's 28 right now. She's not that old. Granted, she has played for a long time. She won Wimbledon when she was 17. So every, I think there was some – the talk of this press conference being for retirement made sense. A lot of people thought that she might retire at the end of this year after the Rio Olympics. A lot of tennis players have cited that as a finish line they want to be able to cross before hanging it up. But Sharapova will get some time off to heal now. I mean, we've seen t- players in tennis come back stronger after these uh, you know, Federation-mandated timeouts, Marin Cilic had his uh, rest for his positive test and came back and won the U.S. Open out of nowhere next year. Uh, and so if she can take some time off to train and heal, she could come back, at least short-term, better than she has been in a while. Because tennis is such a hamster wheel, the schedule going from January to November, taking some time off to heal up and rest can give you a huge advantage uh, without any sort of performance enhancing over your competitors. All right, Ben, thank you. Um, and I'm just going to announce you out of this uh, segment by noting that uh, the Latvian scientist who invented the drug claimed to a Latvian newspaper that it was used to boost troops fighting stamina in the 80s when the Soviets were battling insurgents in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that that was important for you to know. I, I didn't want to leave this uh segment without without saying that. So uh, ben, ben Rothenberg writes about tennis for the New York Times. He's the host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. He had great stamina throughout this segment. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Now it is time for After Balls, and we already decided it was going to be to- Topeka Sizzlers. We did? Yeah, remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Right at that. Sure. Uh, Mike, what is your Topeka Sizzler? 
Well, this week, Goose Gossage made the news by uh, blasting Jose Bautista and talking about how nerds have ruined baseball. Goose Gossage, with his Fu Manchu, his graying Fu Manchu mustache, doing an impression of two-thirds of the guys who show up at Trump rallies. Okay, so we found this uh, very, very famous moment in Goose Gossage's career. BB Moments. What do you think BB stands for? I don't know. Best in baseball. BB Moments. And what happens is that uh, Kirk Gibson takes the goose deep. And it was all about how the unnerdy Goose Gossage, in this uh, retrospective wearing a Mohegan Sun cap, argued his way into the game in a very unnerdy fashion, thinking that he could just get out Kirk Gibson. So in this series of Talking Heads, what you're going to hear is uh, the goose talking about what happened on that fateful day. And then we'll hear a clip from the actual game because uh, manager Dick Williams was miked. And then we'll come back to Steve Garvey talking about the very non-statty, nerdy sense that manager Dick Williams had with his veterans. It wasn't guided by empiricism, but by his gut. And remember, that was the gut that helped cost him the World Series. Dick Williams came out and he said, hey, what do you want to do? You mean you're talking about striking him out? Yeah. I said, let's go after him. Dick really put a lot of faith in his experienced players and his veterans, especially Nettles, Gossage, myself. When we felt we could do something, he let us do it. When the goose convinced Dick Williams that he should face Kirk Gibson, you have to hear what Sparky said to Kirk to get him going. Here's Lance Parrish talking about the very unnerdy Sparky Anderson giving advice to Kirk Gibson. You know, Sparky was pretty good at motivating Gibby. Just stay within yourself and use your hands. Don't do anything special. You know, and, and I think that fired Gibby up. You know, Gibby was, is the kind of player that loves a challenge. And because he didn't try to do too much, or maybe just because he played baseball a little bit better in that moment that the Goose played baseball, Kirk Gibson hit a home run. It's not a triumph of nerds over non-nerds. It's a triumph of a guy swinging a bat over a guy pitching a ball. But I kind of reveled in the fact that the tough and gutsy Goose Gossage really probably should have just uh, been lifted, as any guy who looked at the advanced metrics of that situation would have told you. You burned, Goose. Uh, Stefan, what is your Topeka Sizzler? Well, I'm going to get ahead of the pack on next month's big sports story, and that is the U.S. Open Pickleball Championships, which will be held in Pickleball Mad Florida from April 27th to May 1st. There actually was some big advance news last week. Officials announced that Minto Communities had been named the title sponsor of the tournament. According to the USA Pickleball Association, a record 760-plus players from 10 countries already have registered to compete for the whopping $25,000 purse. Tickets for the finals at the new pickleball courts in East Naples Community Park are $28. They're sure to go fast. Here's one question you might be asking right now. What the fuck is pickleball? It is a game played with a rectangular paddle, like one of those cutting boards that have a handle. The ball is one of those plastic balls with holes in them, according to Section 2D, subsections 1 through 7 of the USAPA rulebook. The ball must be 2 and 3 quarters to 3 inches in diameter with a hardness of 35 to 50 on a durometer D scale at a temperature of 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. The court is a badminton court, basically, pretty small, with a low net. Players hit the ball back and forth. They score points. Every news story calls pickleball a cross between tennis, table tennis, and badminton. Tennis Magazine in 1976 said that pickleball was America's newest racket sport. Sure, Tennis Magazine, if you call 11 years old new, 
Pickleball was invented on a rainy summer afternoon on Bainbridge Island in Washington State in 1965 by two parents who were sick of their children. Let's listen to this riveting 2009 interview with the third James Naismith of Pickleball, Barney McCallum, a friend of the two other guys. The kids were uh, getting on everybody's nerves, and so uh, Joe Pritchard picked up a ping-pong paddle, which happened to be in his cabin, and saw a, uh, a fun ball, which was uh, softball size, and said, hey, you kids get out of here and go up to the badminton court and hit this ball around. We're tired of you. So the kids did. They left, as they were told by their elders, and they didn't come back. This goes on in great detail for 13 minutes and 58 seconds. The story of the evolution of the non-volley line is at the 6.30 mark, if you want to listen. What about the stupid name, either for a dog named Pickles, who chased the balls, or because it was a mashup of sports, like a pickle boat in crew made up of scrubs from the other boats? In any case, the three pickleball amigos wrote down some rules, built a court, formed a pickleball company. Eventually, there was a tournament, a national organization, paddles made of space-age materials, and in 2001, a coveted spot in the Arizona Senior Olympics. That was a likely inevitable destination, because while pickleball was invented for for the kids, it was suited to the oldsters. The court is small. You don't have to run much. The ball with all those holes doesn't move that fast or hurt you very much when it hits you. Enthusiasts tickled by pickleball, the Mojave Valley News reports from Bullhead City, Arizona, where the senior pickleball games began last week. Local seniors enjoy health, social benefits of pickleball, says the Los Altos town crier. Sun City, Arizona is expecting 600 players, spectators, and volunteers for its sixth annual Sun City West Fun in the Sun Pickleball Tournament this week. Cancer Survivor Gets Fit with Pickleball headlines the Delaware State News. Game on! Pickleball among popular amenities at Pelican Preserve a 55-and-better active lifestyle community in Fort Myers, Florida. Naples, you'll recall, is hosting the U.S. Open. It has a local league with more than 600 players. The city is building 12 state-of-the-art courts for the championship. We want to make Naples the flushing meadows of pickleball, says the head of the promotions company that's running the tournament. But for all of its obvious physical, mental, social, and economic development benefits, pickleball has its haters. Controversy erupted in Punta Gorda, Florida last year after the city replaced underused tennis courts in a waterfront park with dedicated pickleball courts. They're packed from 8 in the morning to 10 at night, and people are mad because the sound of the plastic ball pinging off the paddles is fucking annoying. It has become a public nuisance. We pray for rain because it will be a day of being quiet, one resident said. It's like living with a dripping faucet, only worse because we know we cannot turn it off, said another. A third neighbor said that with the courts packed with 32 players and another 60 to 80 watching and waiting their turn, it's like a party outside your house all the time. I don't know, that would actually be a pretty good slogan for pickleball, a party outside your house all the time. Pickle party. Pickle party. Josh, what's your Topeka sizzler? So now that the BCS computers are dead and buried, in a desert next to all those ET cartridges. Uh, the worst metric in sports is the RPI, which still exists. There's Ugh. a lot of talk this year that the committee uh, that picks the NCAA basketball tournament teams is using different metrics. Um, there's some thought that maybe that's why Wichita State got in, which had a not very good RPI, but was ranked very highly in the Ken Palm ratings. Love Ken Palm. Um, I think they were number 12, but 
every time that there's a conversation about one of these teams, whether it's in like the ESPN bracketology or whether it's actually from the members of the committee, they'll say, this team has such and such top 50 wins or, oh, their best win out of conference wasn't in the top 80 or they lost to three teams that are above 200. And those are all references to the RPI. It's baked into the selection process. So even when they say, oh, it's only one factor of many, it's the only thing that they talk about. So it seems like it's a pretty important factor. So the NCAA needs to repudiate the RPI. It's time to get rid of it. It is dumb. It is awful. And it's really the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike, you were talking about this on Twitter, about how you're more upset about uh you know bubble bubble snubs than most things in the world yeah but we should put all of our weight behind rpi i'm going to explain briefly to people why it's terrible and then you can join the movement so ken pomeroy hey we've mentioned him a couple times he wrote a piece about this for slate in 2011 um, and he noted that the formula it's 25 percent based on your own winning percentage and then it's 50 percent based on your opponent's winning percentage and 25% from your opponent's opponent's winning percentage, which is fun because it's always nice to say opponent's opponent's winning percentage. But you'll notice that 75% of the formula is based on your strength of schedule, which like fair enough, strength of schedule is like a good thing. You want to play like good teams. And if you just play all terrible teams and have a good record, that's, you know, that you want to reflect that somehow. But 75% of this formula that is the most important formula is based on absolutely nothing to do with you know what happens. It's just entirely determined by how your schedule is made before the season. It is the weirdest, most bizarre, dumbest metric in sports as yes. discussed. So the thing that illustrates this the best is that your RPI, the worst thing you can do is play a bad team. If you beat that bad team, it's horrible. If you lose to a good team, that's great. So I can understand if you'll say like, all right, you're playing like uh, LSU, for example. They suck. I don't understand why you have to downgrade a team for playing a bad opponent. You can just not count it at all. Just don't consider it. But to say it's actively bad to even play a bad team. We went out and beat all the teams (laughs) on our schedule, and that was the problem. (laughs) <laughs> you also so, played all your teams on the schedule. And then to, to also count strength of schedule in addition to RPI, which is almost entirely based <laughs> on strength of schedule. And then I understand if this was someone's idea way back when. But now that we know this, you got to get away from it. And I was talking about this. In, I, I, I give some of my time to Mike Pesca. Okay. And I was talking <laughs> the gentleman about this. Gentleman yields. And I was talking about this in relation to. Uh, the abortion case before the Supreme Court. And the state of appeals for the Fifth Circuit said that it doesn't matter what the rationale is. It only has to be based on, quote, rational speculation unsupported by evidence or empirical data, which is to say one day someone came up with a formula and said, how about this formula? So that's okay. Let's speculate that that will determine the best teams. But once you found out that it doesn't, don't you think you should revise your formula? Maybe the R in RPI doesn't stand for revise. I'm so with you, Josh. So I wanted to end with an analogy because I think that people just don't get outraged about this because it's too confusing. They don't really understand. So here's my analogy, and let me know if you guys agree. It would be like thinking worse of your friend 
because they were set up on a lot of blind dates with people that you thought were terrible. Do you follow me? Yeah. So you're like, hey, like Mike, I like Mike, but you know, he was working with this matchmaking service and they set him up with like all of these horrible women. So, yeah. you know, I, I just don't know what to think about him. But on the other hand, you're like, oh, wow, Mike went out with all of these like really amazing women. They all hated him and just like <laughs> only went out with him once. But like that guy must be amazing. Yeah. That's the RPI for you. But there's nothing we can do. We're powerless in the face of the NCAA, Josh. Maybe I should just read the credits. The system can't change. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We're doomed. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. St. Bonaventures is doomed. <laughs> uh, subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. St. Mary's. Doomed. <laughs> Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Pope Our- Mischievous Third is doomed. <laughs> <laughs> our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast doomed. is Steve Lichtai. Doomed. Super doomed. <laughs> Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Panoply is actually doing well. They're doing yeah, quite not well. Doomed. That's right. uh, hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty. He literally. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks for listening. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.